Rates are rising, spring is springing, what more can I say? Dow records are falling, but the housing market's stalling. The Fed says it's okay. Bitcoin keeps bubbling, inflation seems troubling, yet investors don't feel no way. Money keeps flowing, where's it all going? Doesn't this have to end someday? Maybe no, maybe yes, it's really quite hard to assess. But if we stay focused, drop the hocus pocus, we can get into it on the Investopedia Express. Well, hello and happy spring. And what a better way than a massive railroad merger to get us right on track to start the week. And this one, my friends, is a hot shot. Canadian Pacific Railway is trying to buy Kansas City Southern in a $29 billion deal that would create the first rail network linking Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. It's a big bet on the North American economy, and if approved by regulators, and that's a massive if, the tie-up would unite the two smallest of the seven major North American freight carriers linking factories and ports in Mexico to farms and plants in the Midwestern U.S. and to Canada's ocean ports and energy resources. Don't call it NAFTA anymore, my friends. It's the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, and it's being put to the test. And regulators from both Canada and the U.S. have to sign off on the deal. Railroad historians may remember back in 1999 when Canadian National tried to buy Warren Buffett's own Burlington Northern Santa Fe, but that was blocked by U.S. antitrust authorities. Early signs from the staggered reopening of the U.S. economy are flashing some warning signals. COVID-19 cases are increasing in 21 states and highly infectious variants are starting to spread. Even as the pace of vaccination accelerates in the U.S., the Oxford University AstraZeneca vaccine just passed some important tests and may also see approval by the FDA for emergency use. Treasury yields keep on rising, topping 1.7% last week for the 10-year and sending growth stocks into the spin cycle. The Nasdaq sold off for the fourth week in a row as those rising rates really don't mix well with highly levered, highly valued technology and internet communication stocks. The Fed said at its meeting last week that it's not too concerned about that yield creep or inflation, which remains stubbornly low. Still, several members of the FOMC pushed the time zone of when they expect the Fed to raise rates to late 2022 and the first half of 2023 on the Fed's dot plot, the worst chart in finance. After hibernating for most of the winter, volatility awoke last week with an appetite. It's nowhere near where it was a year ago as the fear of the newly named pandemic was unleashing the fastest bear market in history, but it's awake and it looks really hungry. It's having its appetizer in the highly shorted meme stocks favored by day traders, but it's starting to nibble away at the NASDAQ. Last Thursday was the fourth day this year that the NASDAQ moved up or down at least 3%, according to our friends at Bespoke, and since 1971, There have only been seven other years when the NASDAQ saw as many or more 3% daily moves in the first 52 trading days of the year. Translation, volatility in tech stocks. We're launching a new series on the Express this week. This one's called, There's a Security for That. We're going to do it every time someone or some entity launches a new investing product that we really never thought we needed. This week's honoree is the DSPAC. It's an exchange-traded fund or ETF that would include the 25 largest companies based on market cap that have merged with special purpose acquisition companies, those SPACs that we've been talking about. It's being brought to the market from Tuttle Tactical Management, which calls itself a trend aggregator. It's also launching a short DSPAC ETF, which allows you to short the DSPAC ETF in case you want to bet against these blank check companies. Where's Cassius Cuve when you need him? You know, I got to give a shout out to everybody in the SPAC game. Help me eat good these days. Man, it's crazy. If you win the SPAC game, you know what And I'm then there's this about. from the world of crypto decentralization land. 
Republic Real Estate, a firm that's raising money to buy distressed condos in the physical world, is launching an invite-only fund this week aimed at investors seeking to buy virtual land. You heard me, virtual land. Republic plans to purchase parcels across several online metaverses and develop them into virtual hotels, stores, and for other uses. So think Second Life, but with crypto. Which reminds me, I still have some food trucks and a jazz bar in Second Life that I need to check in on. If you want to buy some virtual real estate from Republic, the minimum investment is only $25,000. Real dollars, please. This is a respectable business. If you'd like to see the showroom of this virtual real estate, you can look at Decentral Land, a virtual place with its own economy, currency, and social events calendar. But prices are rising fast for these properties. So far this year, the average price paid per parcel in Decentral Land was $2,703. That's more than triple what it was in 2020, according to nonfungible.com, which tracks those sales. You can also check out the inventory on CryptoVoxels, another metaverse for people living in the digital world. Meanwhile, back on planet Earth, we have a very busy week ahead. So let's get set up. On the geopolitical front, relations between the U.S. and China will be in focus. Trade reps from the two economic powerhouses met in Alaska last week, and the vibe was frosty. Anthony Blinken, the American Secretary of State, issued a litany of complaints against China's repressions and aggressions, including an increasingly militant posture towards Taiwan and the economic coercion of Australia. China's trade representatives accused the U.S. of meddling in its affairs. Not a great start. The specter of higher taxes crept back into the media sphere last week. President Biden campaigned on a promise to raise corporate taxes to 28% from 21% and raise taxes on Americans who earn $400,000 or more. If the economy continues to improve this year, some Washington watchers say we may see the Biden administration push for a tax reform bill towards the end of this year. On the economic calendar this week, on Monday, we'll get a report on U.S. existing home sales for February. Housing starts and building permits both slipped last month as rising lumber prices, tight housing inventories in most cities, and rising mortgage and refinancing rates cooled down the red-hot housing market. We'll see if that bled into sales. On Tuesday, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell appears virtually on Capitol Hill to discuss the central bank's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The Fed pledged last week to continue its easy money policies until the U.S. economy rebounds further from the pandemic. On Wednesday, we'll get surveys of purchasing managers for March, and they're expected to indicate that the Eurozone economy was in a recession during the first quarter of this year, while the U.S. recovery accelerated. On Thursday, we'll get our weekly read on the past week's new applications for jobless benefits. They've been trending lower until last week when they spiked to 770,000 unexpectedly. Was that a seasonal blip that was impacted by the bad weather in the beginning of the month or a trend reversal? And on Friday, we'll get U.S. personal income and consumer spending for February. That was before the American Rescue Plan was signed and checks and direct deposits started going out. Spending may have slowed again as it did in January, but with the stimulus checks in hand or on the way, expect a big spike in March and April. On the corporate side, let's keep an eye on the battle for rideshare dominance between Lyft and Uber. Uber just suffered a setback with a U.K. ruling that says it must treat its 70,000 drivers there as employees. Lyft, on the other hand, may benefit more from the surge in rideshare volume that is happening as more and more people get vaccinated. In the past month, Lyft shares are up 13%, while Uber has fallen 3%. We'll get earnings this week from Tencent Music, Winnebago, and that stock keeps hitting all-time highs as Americans keep hitting the road, and GameStop reports its results on Tuesday. 
This will be GameStop's first earnings report since the day trading frenzy has taken the stock on a mighty ride up 963% so far this year. How's that new e-commerce strategy working? History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, as Mark Twain may or may not have said. And and let's hope we don't get a repeat of 2020 ever again. But economic cycles do have a way of leaving familiar patterns in the sand. Booms followed by busts, followed by bigger booms that lead to extremes. But the past several boom and bust cycles here in the U.S. have led to uneven recoveries, more income inequality, more separation between the investing class, and less opportunity for those on the lower end of the income scale. CNN's chief business correspondent and anchor of Early Start, Christine Romans, has covered several of those cycles in her career, and she is our very special guest on The Express. Welcome aboard, my friend. Hi there, Caleb. You and I covered a lot of these cycles together at CNN when I was there. At the time, 2008 seemed like an apocalypse, but then last year came along. We had this global health pandemic that's killed millions of people, flipped the economies on their heads. So the devastation was really different this time around. But the collapse of the market and the economy and the recovery has a lot of similarities, but it just feels so much more compressed. Doesn't it feel that way to you? Yeah, it really does. And it feels like this health crisis laid on top of here or as the catalyst makes it so much different because we were worried about our financial well-being in 2008, 2009, even 2010. We're worried about our health and our financial well-being this time, the education of our kids, whether our families can survive here. So it's, it's a little more visceral this time. It's still a calamity, but this time to me, it feels real personal. Right. But at the same time, capital markets are way out in front of the economic recovery. We see the economic recovery in the numbers every week, every month. And if you just look at numbers, seems like the economy is bouncing back. The V-shape is finally here. But the real feel economy, the one that you do so much good reporting on, feels kind of different, except for folks that have done very well in the investing class and those that have held on to their assets and their jobs, right? Yeah, they're calling it the K-shape recovery, right? So you've got this one line that goes straight up, and that's the investor class. That's also people who make maybe more than $300,000 a year, that top 5%. They're doing great. If you've got a job, if you can work from home, you're gaining jobs in that part of the economy. And then the rest of the economy is going still going down. I mean, we're nine and a half million jobs in the hole still, Caleb. And that really worries me. And those people more likely to be low income workers, more likely to be women, African-American women, Hispanic women who are working frontline jobs that have been laid off in hospitality and restaurants, more likely to be working two part-time jobs. So they had two commutes, they had childcare issues. I mean, it's just insult to injury, literally for that part of the uh, labor market. And you see stock markets making record highs after record highs because the investing class has been all in on this and way in front of the recovery. Plus, you have those ultra low interest rates, right? You have this perfect mix for the wealthy and investors to do well. And you have this other mix where, like you said, the services part of the economy, lower income folks who don't earn that much money, who can't work from home, are just missing out on this recovery. So the income inequality tilts again in favor of the haves instead of the have-nots. How do we fix that? Well, that's what the president and Congress, the Democrats in Congress, have tried to do with this American Rescue Plan. I mean, I see in there the biggest attempt to get money to the part of that K-shape recovery that is not recovering. It's a generational shift here in how we are basically moving the money to the bottom end to try to help people. And a lot of folks, you look at the the Tax Policy Center and others have, have run these numbers, Caleb, and you look at the essentially the tax relief over the next year 
for low and middle income families is bigger than the uh, President Trump's tax cuts for sure. And even bigger than Reagan's tax cuts back in the 1980s. I mean, it is a potentially legacy landmark building kind of shift in how we're thinking about things. Get money to the people who don't have a lot of money in their pockets. Try to cushion that part of the labor market and not necessarily the top end, which is what prior recoveries have been about. Once that money does go to folks that are earning less than $150,000 or $70,000, those stimulus checks and the tax cuts that aren't going to, potential tax cuts that aren't going to affect but the wealthy, how do you get folks to invest, to build a lifetime of investing and growing and compounding their wealth when they haven't either had access to those resources before or just never been exposed to that where the real wealth building occurs? So this is the first step. The first step is is giving people the breathing space to be able to seek out those opportunities. Because what we have now are millions of people in this country, an army of low-wage workers working a couple of part-time jobs. These are not teenagers, and these are not new immigrants into the labor force. These are people with kids. These are people in their 20s and 30s and 40s. These jobs are just their only lifeline here. You can't move up if you can't pay the bills right now, right? So this is the first step, I would call it, this American Rescue Package from Congress. And and I think that there are Democrats and certainly job market experts who would like to make some of these provisions permanent. A lot of this stuff is temporary. This is a a one-shot thing for the child tax credits and for some of this tax relief. They'd like to see some of that made more permanent. But you're absolutely right that building wealth has got to be what we are focusing on for this part of the labor market. And, And right now, when you're just trying to figure out who's going to take care of your kids so you can go make eight or nine dollars an hour. You can't build wealth with it. You're just trying to make the paycheck last as long as a month. We saw so many new investors and traders flooding into the market in 2020 because some stimulus money, they were working from home. Uh, there wasn't any sports to gamble on. There wasn't much to do for folks, but do some of that. And that's a good thing for folks to start investing. But we saw so much trading, obviously, with the meme stocks and the game stops of it all, which is fine too. But What we don't want to see is folks taking all this money or money that they may have recently made if they were able to hold on to jobs or or hang in there and gamble it in the stock market. At the same time, we do want people investing for the long term. How do we strike that balance between don't gamble here? This is a place to build a lifetime of investing and, and wealth. I'm so glad you bring that up because now that you have no fee brokerage accounts, you know me. I take the the young, the new workers in the office, in the newsroom, I'm the first one to say, go open up an E-Trade account, go open up a Robinhood account, go find some stocks, the companies that you kind of understand what they do and start investing. You know, make sure you're maxing out your 401k. Like I really think that kids, young people have to be invested and learn about it that way. But by the same token, you have that money in these trading accounts, right? You have these no fee trading accounts, you had stimulus checks. And we saw what happened when people got way out over their skis and didn't understand what they were doing and really got burned. So, you know, I always believe the financial literacy is the, is the financial education is the most important thing we do. It, we're terrible at it as a country in general. But I think that learning about how companies work, learning about how the economy works and making sure the mindset in this country for everyone should be how to grow your money, not how to spend your money. And everything in this country is all geared to how to spend, what to have, but how to grow your net worth should be our, our, our goal when we talk about 
money. Amen to that and amen to financial literacy. And instead of the retail sales report or the consumer spending report, maybe it should be the, you know, the investment growth or the, uh, you know, how much money you were able to put to work and compound your wealth. I think that should be a much more important metric. Maybe Investopedia and uh, CNN business need to launch that one together. You're a farm girl from the great state of Iowa. Go Cyclones. What do you make of the spike we've seen in the commodity prices in the, in the past six months? The Fed says there's no inflation, but you've checked bacon prices lately. You've got three boys, lumber, wheat. What's happening out there on the farm? You know, so what I'm hearing is a lot of these price increases are transitory, as the Fed chief says. Janet Yellen, the Treasury secretary, says that these things are going to cool off again. There's been so much disruption in these global supply chains. I mean, that's what really I'm watching here. I mean, when you look at autos, when you look at chips for consoles, trying to get your hands on an Xbox, you know, there are these big disruptions all over the place that I'm hoping we're going to COVID related disruptions. Also, right now, you know, you've been watching oil prices. That has meant higher gasoline prices for folks. Now, I know that yesterday there was a big move in oil. Recently, there was a, a big move in oil out of fears that demand may cool in Europe because of the slow COVID vaccine roll out there. But in general, if you believe the Treasury Secretary and the Fed that any kind of price increases are not going to lead to some sort of crippling inflation, I will say we haven't had it. We've worried about inflation for 30 years, right? And really haven't had a big inflation problem. It was so bad in the 70s. That's why everyone freaks out so much about inflation, because it can be super hard, super hard to kill it once it's a problem. But let's be honest. I mean, the 10-year note yield right now is 1.7%. That's the highest in a year. But what, that's half what it was a couple of years ago. Right. Talk to anybody that was investing in the 70s and 80s, and they would smack you upside the head when they were dealing with 14, 15% mortgages and interest rates that were just on, out of control, gas lines in the 1970s. So we do get a little panicked, obviously, and the littlest things seem to become the biggest deals. But that's partly because of financial media, guilty as charged, but also because this is a, just a super sensitive time right now in the economy when you do have this income inequality rising, but you have this massive potential bubble in some asset classes. What do you feel like is the biggest risk to the economy right now, the U.S. economy, as we sort of head into the spring and we're taking our masks off and states are opening up and it seems like the economy is ready to pounce? I think the economy is going to boom. And I think my biggest risk is scarring in the labor market, scarring at the part of the labor market where people are the most vulnerable. I'm really worried about people working minimum wage jobs, two or three minimum wage jobs with kids who are worried about education, who have to take care of an elderly family member. I just don't think we have done very much as a society to protect this part of the, the economy, to be honest. And I'm really worried about permanent scaring there. You know, there there's a, a guy I follow, you know, Greg Valliere, who you know too. Frequent guest on The Express. He's talking about the big risk. He put it down in paper this week. He said, the big risk is we're going to have such a tight labor market. We're going to have labor shortages when we come out on the other side of that. And I hope he's right, but I hope that doesn't mean we have flushed thousands and thousands of people, millions of people out of the labor market. You can have labor shortages and still have a lot of people who aren't even in the labor market because they've been sidelined. I'm worried about that. Right. You get a lot of discouraged workers and then you get companies and you hear it left and right. We can't find enough qualified workers. Well, what does qualified workers mean? That means we're lacking the job training in some key areas, which I guess is also part of what the Biden administration may be trying to address with green infrastructure, job retraining, et cetera. But you do have this labor shortage company saying they can't get enough, but then you have millions of discouraged workers that can't get back to work or they're working two, as you said, part-time jobs just to make ends meet. So it is feels like, yeah, things are growing, but not for everybody, which is kind of the way things happen out of these big recoveries and booms and busts. So it'd be great if we were able to fix that. Where do you feel like, if anywhere, we are in a bubble? Is it the stock market? Is it the non-fungible tokens? Is it, you know, is it Bitcoin? Is it even hard to know if you're in a bubble because 
There are bubbles all around you. Okay. Those NFTs break my brain, Caleb. My brain is broken over the economic, what it, can you call that the economics of the NFT market? I don't even know, but yes, I think that's bubbly. File that one under fads and bubbles. I don't know. I mean, I see when you talk about some of these SPACs, the values of these SPACs, and there's just a lot of, there's just so much money sloshing around out there, right? It's finding these really interesting new corners to be in. And I'm pretty boring. I mean, my I like my boring investments, you know, my low cost index funds and ETFs. After the internet bubble burst back in 1999, 2000, you wrote the book, How to Speak Money, which what prompted you to do that? And if you were going to write the book now, 2021, coming out of this economic calamity, what would it be called? And when can we expect it, please? Oh my gosh, it would be a How to Speak Money Redux. I wrote that with Ali Velshi, actually. And both of us came out of that crisis saying, wow, there are some really complicated financial engineering products out there that wrecked us. But most people didn't even understand how to finance a home. And uh, there was so much financial engineering on that really important, probably most important investment you're ever going to make the home um, that we decided we had to go back and just really teach people what the language was of finance. Because the thing we hear more than I hear still more than anything else is like, oh, you're talking about money. I don't understand that. It's like, oh my gosh, it's the oxygen of your life. You know, of course you, of course you understand it. You use it every day. So that's what I really think that we always have to go back to that financial literacy and financial education. That's, that's the basis of all this. It's also at the core of every boom and bust, right? Is a lack of understanding about how that money works. Your money, your health, the two most important things and the things we don't like to talk enough about because either there's some shame or we think we're going to be baffled by it, but those couldn't matter more. And we're all about financial literacy. And so are you. And you do such a good job of it at CNN and in general spreading the gospel of it. And that's why we love your work. And I've loved working with you for so many years when we were able to work together at CNN. Christine Romans, the chief business correspondent at CNN. Thanks for being on The Express. Nice to see you. It's terminology time, time for the educated investor to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us courtesy of Ethan in Lawrence, California. Ethan suggests quantitative easing, and given how easy the Fed seems to be taking things these days, we like that suggestion. According to Investopedia, quantitative easing, or QE as the pros call it, is a form of unconventional monetary policy in which a central bank purchases longer-term securities from the open market in order to increase the money supply and encourage lending and investment. Buying these securities adds new money to the economy and also serves to lower interest rates by bidding up fixed-income securities. It also expands the central bank's balance sheet. And that balance sheet's been very expansive lately. Now, as we know, the Fed has been using QE or quantitative easing since the pandemic began, and now it is purchasing up to $120 billion worth of government bonds every month. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said there's no plans to change that amount anytime soon, but real interest rates are rising as the economy improves. As more government spending piles up, the Treasury will have to issue more bonds to pay for that spending, and the Fed may be forced to increase its quantitative easing measures and buy more bonds to deal with the oversupply. If the Fed slows its purchases, it could set off what is known as a taper tantrum. We saw that in 2013, and the stock market had a nasty correction as a result. Good suggestion, Ethan. A pair of butter soft and very elegant Investopedia socks are in the mail to you, good sir. We'll let Esther Duflo, one of the only two women to win the Nobel Prize in Economics, take us out this week as we continue to celebrate Women's History Month. Duflo and her colleagues won the award in 2019 for their groundbreaking work on poverty. 
Here's Duflo in her acceptance speech speaking about how work in her communities, especially in identifying female role models, help lift those communities out of poverty and how more important work like what she's doing would be helped if there were more female economists. Some of my own work has been on the importance of women as role models. I cannot help but hope that this prize, with its emphasis on the essential questions of how to improve the life of others, and with one woman among the laureates, will encourage many others to come join us. Amen to that. More women in economics, more women in finance, and more women in science. That's the end of the line for us this week, but you can have as much Investopedia as you can eat. Sign up for our daily newsletters, including The Express, out every morning, The Markets I'm Out every afternoon, The Daily every day, Term of the Day, and also Chart Advisor for all you pattern watchers. We're also all over your favorite social media platforms with a new investor education series on TikTok and Instagram. You can't miss us. Stay smart, stay safe, and stay healthy. We'll talk to you again soon.